Chapters 39 and 40 of Beasts, Men, and Gods. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Beasts, Men, and Gods by Ferdinand Ossendowski. Chapter 39 The Man with a Head Like a Saddle. After drinking tea at de Jambolon's yurta, I rode back to my quarters and packed my few belongings. The Lama Turgut was already there. "'The Minister of War will travel with us,' he whispered. "'It is necessary.' "'All right,' I answered, and rode off to Olofsson to summon him. But Olofsson unexpectedly announced that he was forced to spend some few days more in Urga. A fatal decision for him.' For a month later he was reported killed by Sepilov, who remained as commandant of the city after Baron Ungern's departure. The war minister, a stout young Mongol, joined our caravan. When we had gone about six miles from the city, we saw an automobile coming up behind us. The lama shrunk up inside his coat and looked at me with fear. I felt the now familiar atmosphere of danger, and so opened my holster and threw over the safety catch of my revolver. Soon the motor stopped alongside our caravan. In it sat Sepilov with a smiling face, and beside him his two executioners, Chestiakov and Jidanov. Sepilov greeted us very warmly, and asked, "'You are changing your horses in Kazahuduk? Does the road cross that pass ahead? I don't know the way, and must overtake an envoy who went there.' The Minister of War answered that we would be in Kazohuduk that evening, and gave Sepilov directions as to the road. The motor rushed away, and, when it had topped the pass, he ordered one of the Mongols to gallop forward to see whether it, it had not stopped somewhere near the other side. The Mongol whipped his steed and sped away. We followed slowly. "'What is the matter?' I asked. "'Please explain.' The minister told me that the Jam Bolin yesterday received information that Sepilov planned to overtake me on the way and kill me. Sepilov suspected that I had stirred up the baron against him. The Jam Bolin reported the matter to the baron, who organized this column for my safety. The returning Mongol reported that the motor-car had gone on out of sight. Now, said the minister, we shall take quite another route, so that the colonel will wait in vain for us at Kazahuduk. We turned north at Undur Dobo, and at night were in the camp of a local prince. Here we took leave of our minister, received splendid fresh horses, and quickly continued our trip to the east, leaving behind us the man with a head like a saddle, against whom I had been warned by the old fortune-teller in the vicinity of Van Cure. After twelve days without further adventures, we reached the first railway station on the Chinese Eastern Railway, from where I travelled in unbelievable luxury to Peking. Surrounded by the comforts and conveniences of the splendid hotel at Peking, while shedding all the attributes of traveller, hunter, and warrior, I could not, however, throw off the spell of those nine days spent in Urga, where I had daily met Baron Ungern, incarnated god of war. The newspapers carrying accounts of the bloody march of the baron through Transbaikalia brought the pictures ever fresh to my mind. Even now, although more than seven months have elapsed, I cannot forget those nights of madness, 
inspiration, and hate. The predictions are fulfilled. Approximately 130 days afterwards, Baron Ungern was captured by the Bolsheviki through the treachery of his officers, and, it is reported, was executed at the end of September. Baron R. F. Ungern von Sternberg, like a bloody storm of avenging karma he spread over Central Asia. What did he leave behind him? The severe order to his soldiers, closing with the words of the revelations of St. John, let no one check the revenge against the corrupter and slayer of the soul of the Russian people. Revolution must be eradicated from the world. Against it the revelations of St. John have warned us thus, and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations, even the unclean things of her fornication, and upon her forehead a name written— Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of the harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. It is a human document, a document of Russian and, perhaps, of world tragedy. But there remained another and more important trace— in the Mongol yurtas, and at the fires of Buryat, Mongol, Tjungar, Kirkiz, Kalmuk, and Tibetan shepherds, still speak the legend born of this son of crusaders and privateers. From the north a white warrior came, and called on the Mongols to break their chains of slavery, which fell upon our freed soil. This white warrior was the incarnated Genghis Khan, and he predicted the coming of the greatest of all Mongols, who will spread the fair faith of Buddha and the glory and power of the offspring of Genghis, Ugadai, and Kublai Khan. So it shall be. Asia is awakened, and her sons utter bold words. It were well for the peace of the world if they go forth as disciples of the wise creators, Ugadai and Sultan Babar rather than under the spell of the bad demons of the destructive Tamerlane. End of chapter. Part 4. The Living Buddha. Chapter 40. In the Blissful Garden of a Thousand Joys. In Mongolia, the country of miracles and mysteries, lives the custodian of all the mysterious and unknown, the Living Buddha, His Holiness, Djebsung Damba Hutaktu Khan, or Bagdo Gehan, Pontiff of Takure. He is the incarnation of the never-dying Buddha, the representative of the unbroken, mysteriously continued line of spiritual emperors ruling since 1670, concealing in themselves the ever-refining spirit of Buddha Amitabha, joined with Cha Razi, or the compassionate spirit of the mountains. In him is everything, even the sun-myth, and the fascination of the mysterious peaks of the Himalayas, tales of the Indian pagoda, the stern majesty of the Mongolian conquerors, emperors of all Asia, and the ancient hazy legends of the Chinese sages. Immersion in the thoughts of the Brahmins, the severities of life of the monks of the virtuous order, the vengeance of the eternally wandering warriors, the Olets, with their khans, Batur Hun Taigai and Gushi, the proud bequests of Genghis and Kublai Khan, 
the clerical reactionary psychology of the lamas, the mystery of Tibetan kings beginning from strong sang gampo, and the mercilessness of the yellow sect of Paspa, all the hazy history of Asia, of Mongolia, Pamir, Himalayas, Mesopotamia, Persia, and China, surrounds the living god of Urga. It is little wonder that his name is honoured along the Volga in Siberia, Arabia, between the Tigris and Euphrates, in Indochina, and on the shores of the Arctic Ocean. During my stay in Urga I visited the abode of the living Buddha several times, spoke with him, and observed his life. His favourite learned marambas gave me long accounts of him. I saw him reading horoscopes, I heard his predictions, I looked over his archives of ancient books and the manuscripts containing the lives and predictions of all the Bagdo Khans. The lamas were very frank and open with me, because the letter of the Hutuktu of Narabanchi won for me their confidence. The personality of the living Buddha is double, just as everything in Lamaism is double. Clever, penetrating, energetic, he at the same time indulges in the drunkenness which has brought on blindness. When he became blind, the lamas were thrown into a state of desperation. Some of them maintained that Bagdo Khan must be poisoned, and another incarnate Buddha said in his place, while the others pointed out the great merits of the pontiff in the eyes of Mongolians and the followers of the yellow faith. They finally decided to propitiate the gods by building a great temple with a gigantic statue of Buddha. However, this did not help the Bagdo sight, but the whole incident gave him the opportunity of hurrying on to their higher life those among the lamas who had shown too much radicalism in their proposed method of solving his problem. He never ceases to ponder upon the cause of the church and of Mongolia, and at the same time likes to indulge himself with useless trifles. He amuses himself with artillery. A retired Russian officer presented him with two old guns, for which the donor received the title of Tumba'ir Hun, that is, Prince Dear to My Heart. On holidays these cannon were fired to the great amusement of the blind man. Motor-cars, gramophones, telephones, crystals, porcelains, pictures, perfumes, musical instruments, rare animals and birds, elephants, Himalayan bears, monkeys, Indian snakes and parrots, all these were in the palace of the god, but all were soon cast aside and forgotten. To Urga came pilgrims and presents from all the Lamaite and Buddhist world. Once the treasurer of the palace, the Honourable Balma Dorji, took me into the great hall where the presents were kept. It was a most unique museum of precious articles. Here were gathered together rare objects unknown to the museums of Europe. The treasurer, as he opened a case with a silver lock, said to me, "'These are pure gold nuggets from Bai Kem. Here are black sables from Kemchik. These the miraculous deer-horns. This a box sent by the Orochans, and filled with precious ginseng roots and fragrant musk. This a bit of amber from the coast of the frozen sea, and it weighs one hundred twenty-four lands, about ten pounds.' These are precious stones from India, fragrant zebet and carved ivory from China. He showed the exhibits and talked of them for a long time, and evidently enjoyed the telling. 
and really it was wonderful. Before my eyes lay the bundles of rare furs, white beaver, black sables, white, blue, and black fox, and black panthers, small beautifully carved tortoise-shell boxes containing hatticks ten or fifteen yards long, woven from Indian silk as fine as the webs of the spider, small bags made of golden thread filled with pearls, the presence of Indian rajas, precious rings with sapphires and rubies from China and India, big pieces of jade, rough diamonds, ivory tusks ornamented with gold, pearls, and precious stones, bright clothes sewn with gold and silver thread, walrus tusks carved in bas-relief by the primitive artists on the shore of the Bering Sea, and much more that one cannot recall or recount. In a separate room stood the cases with the statues of Buddha, made of gold, silver, bronze, ivory, coral, mother-of-pearl, and from a rare-coloured and fragrant species of wood. You know when conquerors come into a country where the gods are honoured, they break the images and throw them down. So it was more than three hundred years ago when the Kalmucks went into Tibet, and the same was repeated in Peking when the European troops looted the place in 1900. But do you know why this is done? Take one of the statues and examine it. I picked up one nearest the edge, a wooden Buddha, and began examining it. Inside something was loose and rattled. "'Do you hear it?' the lama asked. "'These are precious stones and bits of gold, the entrails of the god. This is the reason why the conquerors at once break up the statues of the gods. Many famous precious stones have appeared from the interior of the statues of the gods in India, Babylon, and China. Some rooms were devoted to the library, where manuscripts and volumes of different epics in different languages and with many diverse themes fill the shelves. Some of them are mouldering or pulverizing away, and the lamas cover these now with a solution which partially solidifies like a jelly to protect what remains from the ravages of the air. There also we saw tablets of clay with the cuneiform inscriptions evidently from Babylonia. Chinese, Indian, and Tibetan books shelved beside those of Mongolia, tomes of the ancient pure Buddhism, books of the red caps or corrupt Buddhism, books of the yellow or Lamaite Buddhism, books of traditions, legends, and parables. Groups of lamas were perusing, studying, and copying these books, preserving and spreading the ancient wisdom for their successors. One department is devoted to the mysterious books on magic, the historical lives and works of all the thirty-one living Buddhas, with the bulls of the Dalai Lama, of the pontiff from Tashi Lumpo, of the Hutuktu of Utai in China, of the Pandita Gagan of Dolo Nor in Inner Mongolia, and of the hundred Chinese wise men. Only the Bagdu Hutuktu and Maramba Tarimpo Cha can enter this room of mysterious lore. The keys to it rest with the seals of the living Buddha, and the ruby ring of Genghis Khan ornamented with the sign of the swastika in the chest in the private study of the Bagdu. The person of His Holiness is surrounded by five thousand lamas. They are divided into many ranks, from simple servants to the counsellors of God, for which latter the government consists. 
Among these councillors are all the four Khans of Mongolia and the five highest princes. Of all the Lamas there are three classes of peculiar interest, about which the living Buddha himself told me when I visited him with Dijam Bolam. The god sorrowfully mourned over the demoralized and sumptuous life led by the Lamas, which decreased rapidly the number of fortune-tellers and clairvoyants among their ranks, saying of it, if the Jahansi and Narabanchi monasteries had not preserved their strict regime and rules, Takure would have been left without prophets and fortune-tellers. Baron Abaganor, Torchiol Jurdak, and the other holy lamas who had the power of seeing that which is hidden from the sight of the common people, have gone with the blessing of the gods. This class of lamas is a very important one because every important personage visiting the monasteries at Urga is shown to the Lama Tsuran, or fortune-teller, without the knowledge of the visitor, for the study of his destiny and fate, which are then communicated to the Bogdu Hutaktu, so that with these facts in his possession the Bogdu knows in what way to treat his guest, and what policy to follow towards him. The Tsurans are mostly old men, skinny, exhausted, and severe ascetics, but I have met some who were young, almost boys. They were the Hubulgan, incarnate gods, the future Hutuktus and Gagans of the various Mongolian monasteries. The second class is the doctors, or Talama. They observe the actions of plants and certain products from animals upon people, preserve Tibetan medicines and cures, and study anatomy very carefully, but without making use of vivisection and the scalpel. They are skilful bone-setters, masseurs, and great connoisseurs of hypnotism and animal magnetism. The third class is the highest rank of doctors, consisting chiefly of Tibetans and Kalmuks, poisoners. They may be said to be doctors of political medicine. They live by themselves, apart from any associates, and are the great silent weapon in the hands of the living Buddha. I was informed that a large portion of them are dumb, I saw one such doctor, the very person who poisoned the Chinese physician sent by the Chinese emperor from Peking to liquidate the living Buddha. A small white old fellow, with a deeply wrinkled face, a curl of white hairs on his chin, and with vivacious eyes that were ever shifting inquiringly about him. Whenever he comes to a monastery, the local god ceases to eat and drink in fear of the activities of this Mongolian Lucusta. But even this cannot save the condemned, for a poisoned cap or shirt or boots, or a rosary, a bridle, books or religious articles soaked in a poisonous solution, will surely accomplish the object of the Bogdu Khan. The deepest esteem and religious faithfulness surround the blind pontiff. Before him all fall on their faces. Khans and Hutuktus approach him on their knees. Everything about him is dark full of oriental antiquity. The drunken blind man, listening to the banal arias of the gramophone, or shaking his servants with an electric current from his dynamo, the ferocious old fellow poisoning his political enemies, the lama keeping his people in darkness, and deceiving them with his prophecies and fortune-telling, he is, however, not an entirely ordinary man. One day we sat in the room of the Bogdu, and Prince de Jambolan translated to him my story of the Great War. 
The old fellow was listening very carefully, but suddenly opened his eyes widely and began to give attention to some sounds coming in from outside the room. His face became reverent, supplicant, and frightened. "'The gods call me!' he whispered, and slowly moved into his private shrine, where he prayed loudly about two hours, kneeling immobile as a statue. His prayer consists of conversation with the invisible gods, to whose questions he himself gave the answers. He came out of the shrine pale and exhausted, but pleased and happy. It was his personal prayer. During the regular temple service he did not participate in the prayers, for then he is God. Sitting on his throne he is carried and placed on the altar, and there prayed to by the lamas and the people. He only receives the prayers, hopes, tears, woe, and desperation of the people, immobily gazing into space with his sharp and bright but blind eyes. At various times in the service the lamas robe him in different vestments, combinations of yellow and red, and change his caps. The service always finishes at the solemn moment when the living Buddha, with the tiara on his head, pronounces the pontifical blessing upon the congregation, turning his face to all four cardinal points of the compass, and finally stretching out his hands toward the northwest, that is, to Europe, whither in the belief of the yellow faith must travel the teachings of the wise Buddha. After earnest prayers or long temple services, the pontiff seems very deeply shaken, and often calls his secretaries and dictates his visions and prophecies, always very complicated and unaccompanied by his deductions. Sometimes with the words, Their souls are communicating, he puts on his white robes and goes to pray in his shrine. Then all the gates of the palace are shut, and all the lamas are sunk in solemn, mystic fear. All are praying, telling their rosaries and whispering the orison, Om, Mani Padme Hung, or turning the prayer-wheels with their prayers or exercisings. The fortune-tellers read their horoscopes, the clairvoyants write out their visions, while Marambas search the ancient books for explanations of the words of the living Buddha. End of chapter.